0: From the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, welcome to CHQ&A, Chautauqua's new podcast. I'm Jordan Steves. We're excited to launch this new series this month as we approach the 2018 Chautauqua season of programs in the arts, education, interfaith dialogue, and recreation. In the coming weeks, we'll air conversations with leaders and luminaries who will help define the 2018 summer experience, a little on their personal background, what drives them, and what to look forward to this coming season. Then, during the season, we'll continue the conversation with some of the institution's most prominent guests on their roles in the matters that shape our world. I hope you'll join us. Today, we're speaking with Institution President Michael E. Hill, who is about to enter his second summer as the leader of this organization and community.
1: Well, we're looking in uh, week eight on something we're calling the forgotten, which is history and memory in the 21st century. I've been really curious for a long time why we leave major seminal moments in history and often say never again, yet only to repeat it. Uh, So we'll look at everything from the Holocaust to the civil rights movement. Uh, We'll look at what happened in Kent State as a, a key expression of dissent at a time of great conflict. Yet we find ourselves in a time of great conflict now. Listen
0: on to hear more about Michael's background, path to Chautauqua, and vision for the future of the organization, plus his most anticipated moments of 2018. And now, my conversation with President Michael E. Hill. Joining us in the Cohen Multimedia Studio here on the Chautauqua Institution grounds today is Chautauqua Institution President Michael E. Hill. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today, Michael. Oh, It's great to be here. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. I know you've got plenty on your plate as the season approaches. You've been on, in the job now for approaching a year and a half. This will be
1: your second full season as president. What's going through your mind right now? Well, it's, it's my second full season, but in many ways feels like my first because when I arrived last year in January, so much of the planning had already been done. And while I certainly enjoyed participating in molding things around the edges, this was the first opportunity I had with my colleagues to start from scratch. So the 2018 themes that you see are certainly things that are on my mind. Um, so I feel like there's more anticipation for me in some ways because it's a body of work that I get to participate in from the start versus looking at um, 2017 where I was wondering what that process was yielding those topics. So I'm excited. I'm really excited. So we'll dive into 2018 stuff in a little
0: bit, but what has it been like for you to be behind the scenes in that, as we call it here, sausage
1: making process (laughs) um, to see how that all comes together? Well, I think very few people understandably have an appreciation for how much time and energy and effort it takes to put on a nine-week expression of thought and the arts. And um, you know, and we often joke, my least favorite question from people is, so what do you do the rest of the year? Or or is this a full-time job? And what's your other job? Uh, I think just watching how much time, energy, and effort goes into orchestrating what people would see over nine weeks is significantly more than even I knew. And I think what most people don't understand is while we have a 1045 lecture every day, for example, whomever has landed on that day may have been one of seven or eight choices. Uh, And so you think about all of the events we do and and I think what shocks me is if we do a couple thousand events, we really plan and fits and starts something like 16,000 <laughs> events that eventually boil down into what we present in a season. So that's been a lot of fun, a lot more daunting than I knew it would be. Uh, but I think that's also half half the adventure.
0: So let's talk about your, your job, your position. You, this is a a unique position in the the pantheon of executive <laughs> leadership uh in terms of nonprofits or universities i mean it's sometimes you are you are part ceo part artistic director somewhat of a university president some of the mayor of a small town and oftentimes simultaneously bits and pieces of those or all at once on occasion what has that been like for you to adjust to this different kind of position, the one that you haven't held before?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and, and you and you hit on the, the core descriptors that the search committee gave me when I was interviewing for the job. And I didn't fully realize I, I thought that might have just been a really hokey or cute way of describing the role, but it really is all of those things. Uh, so I would say to you, while I have I've had moments in my life when I've been, quote, unquote, an artistic director. Uh, I've never had a moment where someone has asked me why the streets weren't plowed or the grass wasn't cut on time. Um, I've never had in my previous career a need to think about water management or lake health or a fleet of vehicles to care for a town or how a town plays into a local political structure. Uh I'm a, a leadership dork, so all of those things are really fascinating to me, but certainly new facets of my own life and my own journey, and it's been a lot of fun. Um, some of it comes a little bit more naturally. Uh, the The arts and religion and the education piece are all things that I've spent time in, but the notion of being a mayor of a town, or in some ways, uh, it's What I love about the presidency of this institution, regardless of who sits in it, and you've heard me say this all the time, I often say the 18th president, Mm -hmm. is because the 17 other people that have held this job, what they faced is so fascinating to me. Um, What they faced in reflection of what's happening in the country is so interesting. Uh, So the other piece of it that I didn't anticipate was really feeling emotionally what it meant to be in that line of succession. And on good days, feeling exhilarated by that, and on other days, just being desperately afraid that I would mess that up somehow um, because this place matters so much to people. Mm -hmm. And it's – I've said to people in, in Washington, its I think Chautauqua has one of the few places left where the institutional presidency just has some reverence around it because people care about the place so much. Yes. In a way, we have our own little President's Club
0: here. I'm referencing a, a former CLSC uh, Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle selection, the President's Club, by That's right. Na- uh, Nancy Gibbs, who is a Chautauquan, yep. long-time, lifelong Chautauquan, and Michael Duffy. We did a week on that here uh, several years back. Do you feel like you're a part of – it sounds like you feel like you're a part of your own President's I, Club.
1: I, I do very much, and there's only three of us uh, alive that have held the job um, and Tom Becker has become a really dear friend and, and in many ways is a, a mentor and a guide as I bump up against something and try to put my finger on what I'm bouncing up against and and he can share with me where that history comes from. I also recently talked to Scott McVeigh who called me and so I've now spoken to the only other two living people that have held this job uh, and and the banter, I suspect, I mean, I read Nancy's book and she's become a really dear friend, which is a thrill as a former journalist to, to have uh, this icon in journalism be someone that you can talk to when you want to. Uh, but we've talked about the notion of a president's club and how how much it means to be able to talk to people who understand what you're walking through. And I know Nancy certainly felt that with different editors at Time, mm-hmm. uh, I think for unique jobs are high-pressure jobs, being able to call someone who says, I know exactly how you feel is, is a real perk and a blessing. So I want to step back a little bit and talk
0: about your path to Chautauqua uh, and start right at the beginning. You were born in
1: the North Country here in New York State actually uh, born in western New York born, yeah born so York. born outside of Rochester but grew up most of my life in St. Lawrence County in northern New York how did what what in
0: your childhood kind of set you on your path that led it led you into nonprofit
1: arts leadership well it's funny I I started at the earliest recollection I have of what I wanted to be when I grew up was an astronaut <laughs> and that's beyond comical because I'm really bad at science um and you just like the idea. I liked the idea. I liked the idea of that, and I held on to that for a while. Uh, my dad passed probably four or so years ago, but one of his favorite stories when he was alive was he knew that I wasn't going to follow in anything that my family did. My family's um, auto mechanics and um, carpenters and, and folks that have always worked with their hands and, and been quite good at it, and my dad owned a small... Um, automobile repair shop that, for whatever reason, had two offices attached to it. There was a front office that we would think of as an assistance office and then a back private office. And my dad had set up the front office as his business office. It was right off the garage. And again, for whatever reason, that back office looked a little bit more formal. And he took me down to the garage one summer and I think thought he would start teaching me how to repair cars And I put on the door, uh, Michael Hill Esquire and told him he needed an appointment before we could have lunch. (laughs) So that's me at eight. Um, what I did always know was, and it's one of the reasons I love this job is I'm insatiably curious. Um, there's lots of things that I'm interested in. Uh, so I didn't know at that point what I would be. I I became a student journalist pretty early on and fell in love with writing and editing uh, and thought I would spend my career doing that, uh, went to school to do that. Um, and at the end of my time at St. Bonaventure, had to make a gut check decision on whether I was going to go into journalism or I had started to work at uh, the university's brand new art center and fell in love with managing and producing the arts and decided to go in the other direction and get my master's in arts management which was nowhere on the radar screen until probably my sophomore year in college Hmm. and it's during
0: that time at st bonaventure when chautauqua appeared in your life
1: yeah so you know we we share in common i think she was there dr hamilton was uh my advisor uh was the first female professor of what became the school of journalism at st bonaventure and she was desperate to save my journalism career and so when i told her i was um thinking i would not go into journalism she threw three things at me she threw a job at the new york times she threw um, a full ride to get my master's and phd in journalism and uh, neither of those things stuck much to her unbelievable disbelief And she said, well, okay, if you think you're interested in the arts, Chautauqua Institution has a newspaper that's an arts institution. Maybe you're just supposed to be an arts journalist. So why don't you apply and go work there? Um, Little did she know that would backfire more than a couple times over. But had she not done that, who knows? Because that's when I fell in love with Chautauqua and and came back after my master's degree and was a guest critic for a while. Uh, And really, so when I was a... When I was at the Daily, I bought a Maritza Morgan print. They were selling them in the bookstore at the time. And I laugh because if you if you see the print, it's Maritza and her partner Bob overlooking uh, the Bell Tower on the 4th of July. And that print hung in every either office or apartment I had. And friends of mine who didn't know Chautauqua kept saying, why do you have a picture of an old lady and old man overlooking a lake? Uh, and I would never let anyone take it down because it was my portal back into this place. Mm-hmm. Um so, talk a
0: little bit about your career trajectory. From you went into grad school for arts management did, yeah. in Minnesota, and then um, then you enter you came back to Saint Bonaventure and worked at that very same. I arts did,
1: center. yeah. So I anticipated coming back to Bonaventure for a year. I needed to write my master's program had a practical thesis, so you. Did your You did a year of study, and then you had to go work someplace, dive into a topic, actually wrestle with the topic in a real-world environment, write a thesis, come back, defend your thesis. And so my initial thought was I was simply going to go to the Arts Center for a year as a laboratory. Uh, I was living in a residence hall. I was a minister-in-residence with no credentials. (laughs) Um, And at the end of that year, the founding director of the center decided he wanted to go back into teaching. And the president of the university at the time, now in retrospect, I can see was being shrewd, but I thought it highly unjust at at the moment, uh, said that instead of naming me director, even though I would run the center, he would give me the title of associate director and CEO. And I said to him, in what academic world is there a CEO who's just associate director and why do you have a, a CEO at a university that reports to the university president? So there was all sorts of mangledness around that. Uh, and he had said at the time, he said, well, my my logic is you're extremely young. You're untested. Um, if you do a good job, the promotion is easy. If you don't, we can just lop off the and CEO part. And from a resume perspective, it will look like you just did a nice, healthy tenure as associate director. And so uh, in the impatience of youth, um, I always hated that notion because invariably I'd call an artist or we also had a museum or a visiting artist to exhibit and they'd say, well, that's lovely, but when do we get to talk to the director? Because my title was associate director. Um, A whole confluence of events happened where a, a benefactor of the university died and left a very cryptic... Uh, set of instructions in his will, which was, um, we are going to give you uh, his prints and drawings collection. And we'd like to know from you, what do you need to care for that collection? If you could give us a response to that, uh, we'd appreciate it because we're trying to settle his estate. Uh, Don Kenny had been the chairman of Goldman Sachs International, had been knighted in three Scandinavian countries for helping them rewrite their economic systems and where I give um, Bob Wickenheiser, who was the president at the time, a lot of credit is he said, be bold. What's the response to that question? Don't, don't give me what you think we can afford or what the right, you know, what you think the right answer is. What's the real answer to the question? And so I came back asking for a brand new museum building, an endowed curatorship and, um, and an endowment for the museum. And it totaled about five million dollars. And at the time, Bonaventure's largest single gift had been about $2 million. So we put together, he gave me an architect to work with. We put together a proposal for a new building, flew down to New York. I assumed he was going to pitch the gift. We're in a private dining room at the Plaza Hotel. And he looks and he says, well, Michael has an answer to your question. I was 23 years old um, and stuttered through the presentation. And he said, and Michael, how much will that cost? And I said, $5 million and kind of swallowed my entire throat trying to get that out. And all that the two trustees of the estate said was, that's very interesting. Thank you for coming. Uh, we'll get back to you. And we got back on a private plane and flew to Olean, New York. And I thought, well, uh, there goes that promotion. And there maybe goes the the my career. That next week, the president went into the hospital, and I got a call from the main trustee of the estate who said, well, last week you asked us for $5 million, and there's just no way we can do that. And I thought, well, here it is, right? Here's the day of reckoning. He said, but could you do it for $3.5 million? Hmm. Um, And I said, well, I'm sure we could do that. FedExed me a check. Um, which accidentally was made out to me personally. Um, And I took the check to Olean General Hospital where the president was infirmed. And, you know, you paint the picture. You've got your boss who's laying in a hospital bed with an IV who I think is half on sedative drugs. And I said, I'd really like to talk again about being promoted to director. And he said, oh, my God, we've been over this so many times. I mean, you just there's got to be a proving moment where – I can give you cover and me cover. And I said, well, hypothetically, how much would that cost? And he said, well, that's a ridiculous question. What are you talking about? And I pulled out the check and I said, would $3.5 million get me the promotion? And I got promoted on the spot. <laughs> so you spent a, a little more time at Bonaventure Did. and then
0: absconded for Washington, D.C., where you spent the, the most rest of your career yeah. uh, um, to this
1: point. So I knew there was a, a point at which I was going to make a decision that I think many people who go back to work for their alma maters make. I was either going to make a career working out of working for my alma mater or I was going to make a run for a city. And I knew I'd always wanted to try to live in a city, um, but really enjoyed the program I had built. So there was a tug and pull. And uh, my partner at the time and I decided that we would make a go of it. We picked six cities and decided wherever we both got jobs first, we would go. I had no desire to be a fundraiser. Zero, zilch, uh, fancied myself a program guy, maybe a communications guy. Um, And what I kept being eligible for was fundraising jobs in Washington, because at that point I had raised a significant amount of money. And uh, what I didn't know then that I know now is that every major arts institution in the city was going through a capital campaign and they were all looking for directors or deputy directors. Uh, So I went to the arena stage and uh, was originally hired as deputy director. And my boss was fired three months later. And at the time, the co-chairs of the campaign were incredibly powerful men. It was the head of the regional power utility. It was the CEO of Fannie Mae, which at at that time was still at the height of its power, could make or break politicians. Uh, And the CEO was the former director of OMB. Um, for Clinton. And the guy that had saved Fannie Mae, and so if you've read the book Good to Great, there's an entire chapter on a man named David Maxwell. Um, Those were my three prospective bosses. Um, So I learned the hard way how to work for people who have the right to be and are extremely exacting about what they want, what they need. Uh, It was an MBA in five years. Uh, to work for folks who literally there was no room for sloppiness. To the point, one funny story I'll share, Frank Raines was the CEO of Fannie Mae. His chief of staff was a woman named Jill Blickstein. And Jill Blickstein scared the blue blazes out of me uh, because she was beyond exacting. Uh, I was driving to a capital campaign steering committee meeting at Fannie Mae headquarters and got stuck behind a car accident. And showed up 10 minutes late to a meeting. No fault of my own. I couldn't get beyond the car wreck. She met me at the door to his pretty massive suite. And they were they were really um, quite hospitable when you went. There was a full breakfast. Um, because we would meet for three or four hours. And I walked in. And I had, e- I had called her. Letting her know what was going on. And she said, you've wasted 10 minutes of Mr. Rain's time. When you walk in, don't even think of picking up coffee or anything to eat. Uh... So that was the level Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we were playing at. Uh, So arena was great. It's a facility to this day that I get chills when I walk into because it was it was just it was a hard campaign. It was an extremely hard campaign, but it was a successful one. Uh, And it what I didn't know then was that it would really set me up to do almost anything I wanted to do in the future, because at the time when it was one of the largest arts campaigns in the country, and the the individuals from a volunteer and a staff perspective that came together to make that happen were remarkable, and many of them are friends to this day. Great. If you're just tuning in, this is Jordan Steves. We're in
0: the Cohen Multimedia Sto- Studio here on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, and joining us today is Michael Hill, the president of Chautauqua Institution. Um, so we'll continue now into your time in D.C. A lot of people have said and would say, looking at your resume, that uh, from your time in D.C., that you were trying out for the presidency of <laughs> Chautauqua Institution. You had a stint at Washington Ballet. You were at the National Cathedral uh, and YFU. The, the last place, your last yeah. stop before Chautauqua, has is a youth uh, programming for uh, programming for youth an exchange program. So,
1: can you talk a little bit about those experiences and what yeah. they set you up for? Um, I have I've heard that, and I think it's it's funny in some ways, oddly true that everything Chautauqua cares about short of recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some exposure to, uh, an experience in, uh, what I would say is that I think the nature of how people that are in Gen X and the millennial generation, how, how we approach jobs is so different than the generations that came before us. Uh, and I think for previous generations, it's, it's sometimes hard to look at a resume like mine and, and ask, you know, well, gosh, it seems like you job hopped a lot. But I think what is the case is the boomers stopped leaving leadership positions. And so for people like me who wanted to learn and grow, there was no place to move up unless you moved over someplace. Um, So at arena stage, when I ended there, and I said this to our executive and artistic directors, uh, and I worked for both of them, we had gotten to almost $100 on a $120 million campaign. And I had used every trick I knew how to use in my bag to raise it. And there was $20 million more to go. Uh, By luck, the woman that had been our capital campaign consultant went to become the associate dean of the cathedral. And she asked me to come work for the cathedral at the time. And so I knew I was having this crisis of... Uh, wondering how I was going to help the theater get through its last 20 million. I, I didn't have an answer to that question. Um, and at the time was in a, in many ways, a, a religious crisis myself, wondering where I fit. And there was a dynamic guy running the cathedral who at that point was brand new. The dean of the cathedral was a gentleman named Sam Lloyd, who really wanted to rewrite the narrative of religion in the United States and believed then and i suspect believes twice as much now that the country had become so polarized that if we couldn't find a way to yank religion from the jaws of left or right of the extremes that religion was only going to be a divisive force versus a force for healing and so she had said i really think you're gonna like this guy sam lloyd i think in many ways he's put his finger on the crisis that your generation feels in religion come talk to him and i thought there is no way in the world I'm going to do this. Um I you know I'm I grew up Catholic. I was very involved in my church. I went to a religious school. I went to St. Bonaventure, which was Franciscan but not, you know, hyper Catholic. Um and I remember sitting down with Sam and instead of interviewing me, he showed up as a pastor versus a president. And he said, "Why do you think it is people like you are not coming to church anymore and are running from it. And we had this far-reaching dialogue. I think I freaked um, the the woman who was hiring me out because I was supposed to be in there an hour, and three and a half hours later, she's like, are you guys done in there? And um, his closing remark to me was, do you want to come help me reclaim religion for people who feel disenfranchised? Uh, I don't know how we're going to do that, but if you're willing to accept a, a really big premise... And bring your best thinking. I think we might be able to reclaim some of this for people like you who, who are on a journey but just doesn't don't feel like there's a home for them. Uh, it was a crazy three and a half years. Uh, he invited the former president of Iran. Uh, there were death threats. Uh, he would. He was bringing very, very senior Muslim Christian and Jewish leaders together at a time that interfaith dialogue was not only not in vogue, I didn't even th- know that we had a name for it as a, as a genre or a body of work. Um, he was convening something called the Sunday Morning Forum, where in between the two church services, he'd bring everyone from an atheist to a homeless person to talk about their journey and, and where it fit in America. Mm-hmm. Um, just a fascinating guy. Uh, The cathedral, unfortunately, like so many older institutions, relied almost entirely on its endowment. And when the market crashed, so too did uh, the operation of the cathedral. So we went from my division alone was 32 people. And I went from that in one week to being told I had to trim it down to six. And so I fired myself um, and took a turnaround job at the Washington Ballet. Uh, was there for 18 months, and another mentor who worked at United Cerebral Palsy, uh, and if he ever hears this, he'll chuckle because I've said this consistently, tricked me into working there. (laughs) Uh, At that time, I was a graduate school professor at George Mason University, and and I was teaching everything from marketing to um, governance and management. And he said, all of my external-facing departments uh, seem to be broken right now Will you come do a management study for me, interview my senior staff, and write up a solution for that because I've tried these seven things and nothing seems to work. And I said, oh, that's that sounds fine. Uh, so I spent three months interviewing his folks. I gave him three scenarios. He said, I really like scenario A and that senior vice president role, I think you should do it. And I said, I, 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 yeah, no desire to go work for, yeah." what did I know about working in a disability space? And he said, well, Talk to me about your family. Well, I have an uncle that has Down syndrome and autism. And he said, well, what was his life like? And so I keep finding myself in front of smart people who ask me really big questions I don't have answers Mm -hmm. for. And his closing response to me was, I really believe that the struggle for people with disabilities is the last great civil rights movement on the planet. Do you want to come help me run a civil rights movement? I'm a sucker for questions like that. Um, So I did. And it was incredible. And he, he is the type of supervisor and president I hope to be because he would look deep into his institution and try to figure out who had the potential to lead things. And maybe it was going to be five or 10 years. So he set me up with two significant fellowships, uh, one through American Express and the other one through the Aspen Institute. And at the end of the Aspen Institute Fellowship, he said um you're ready to be a ceo and love you but get out (laughs) and he said you know start start looking and youth for understanding i was nominated by one of my fellow fellows a woman who had been is currently the ceo of um global giving who had been a yfu alum and she said, I think this is right up your alley. And and like most of the story I'm sharing with you today, well, why would I want to do that? What do I know? Blah, blah, blah. And she said, you teach international kids and you've been doing it for 15 years. Maybe you could go do this. And I loved every day of that job um, to the point that probably only Chautauqua <laughs> could have gotten me from it. I was about ready to sign a new three-year contract when the search process started for Chautauqua.
0: Wow. <laughs> And here you are. And here <laughs> We pulled you in this direction. <laughs> so I do want to um, start to uh, bring this back to Chautauqua yeah. now. Um, in, and I, I, a great place to start is actually what you were just speaking of in your time at uh, the National Cathedral, and uh, it ties into several new strategies and initiatives that you are either beginning here or elevating something that Chautauqua already did to yeah. a, a higher stature. Um, can you talk a little bit about the work in interfaith engagement and that it, it's a theme that's running through our 2018 programming, yep. but also just in general, it's something that Chautauqua is very, it takes a stand for.
1: Yeah, so Chautauqua deserves a lot of credit, just as I noted that Sam Lloyd was having an interfaith conversation before it was in vogue, Chautauqua was doing the same thing. And if you look at where the, (laughs) well, the funny thing is, if you look at the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle, in the early 1900s, one of the books was a a survey on Islam. Hmm. So this institution was putting its finger on what are other world religions saying about the seminal questions of the day more than 100 years ago. Uh, This shows up programmatically for Chautauqua Uh, during Joan Brown Campbell's stint as director of religion, and you start to see things like the Abrahamic Initiative coming forward and young people gathering. And in many ways, that work has been done really effectively but very quietly here. Uh, If you are interested in religion and you come for that reason, you certainly would have bumped into it. But I think for most Chautauquans or casual visitors, you wouldn't really have a sense unless you stitch together several moments that we cared about interfaith engagement. uh, I think the world is in a place now where to simply operate from looking at the world's issues through the lens of your own faith journey is just not how the world operates. And I think that this institution has been is, will be uniquely situated to bring different faith traditions together or the nuns, right? And, And as a raised Catholic, it's N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, that convergence of a growing population that is yearning for some sort of a spiritual journey but refuses to define it in existing mainstream ideologies, and a still very vibrant generation who grew up with faith and organized religion as a pillar of how they understood the world. If we can figure out a way to marry those two things together and get less stuck on specific ideologies and more attuned to universal truths, I think there's a healing power in that. I think there's a dynamic ability to look at the huge issues of the day through a comprehensive lens. And that's in the DNA of this place Mm -hmm. in a way that I think if we do it right, could provide a real resource not only to mainstream religious institutions who are hungry for authentic dialogue but for those quote unquote nuns who can receive and hear the invitation that it doesn't matter what you believe come and journey with us. The power of that synergy really could do good in the world if we can figure out the right way to package both programming and outreach. Uh, Gene Robinson coming along Is in many ways an unbelievable gift, not only in who Gene is, um, you know, he gets known as being the first gay bishop, but for those that really get a chance to know Gene, he started out and really always has been a pastor at heart. And because of who he is, because of the ground that he broke, he has access to some of the theological minds that we would not traditionally have Mm -hmm. access to. So I think we're entering into. Uh, perhaps one of the most dynamic periods in Chautauqua's history of now interfaith exploration than perhaps it's ever seen. Sure, and Gene, uh, just for those who listening, is the new VP for religion and That's senior right.
0: pastor here at Chautauqua, and we've we've had a sit down with him. It's also part of this preseason series that we're putting together, and so you can, um, if you're listening to this and interested in uh, more about Chautauqua and that, and particularly the religion pillar, I'd invite you to uh, to look that up at chq.org. Um, it's a good segue, I think, to the next topic I want to ask you about, which is diversity. Yeah, um, you gave a an address to the non nonprofit partnership in Erie last fall on the topic title was how to embrace diversity when you have none or very little. And (laughs) I want to quote a couple (laughs) things in here, because I I, first I I love that there's, you come right out, there's a a great sense of self awareness here that, you know, it's a risk, you say that it might be, it might appear a bit risky for me, a white guy, a member of the most privileged of privileged classes to be standing before a group of colleagues talking about diversity, but that but it's important because you have the microphone to do that. And I I love what you say here. You talk about Chautauqua entering this period of introspection. And what do we do about being a community that needs to better reflect the society as a whole? You said, first, don't let the uh, quote, first, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. While we do this important work of introspection, I made the decision to put a stake in the ground to say, we know diversity is an issue. We believe that attracting larger populations of people who come from different backgrounds and beliefs is important to the sustainability of Chautauqua, and we aren't going to wait until we have a perfect definition or vision to begin the work, end quote. So uh,
1: that work has begun. What, what does that look like so far? It has, and a lot has changed even since that address. So one thing is I, that I love and I think it's what brings... Chautauqua wins back and or attracts people who have never been here is The thought leadership that comes through this place in a summer and what that thought leadership has to say For me is like let's go back to academia. It's like taking a master's or a doctoral program every summer uh, And then chewing on it And so one of the most profound lectures from last season for me was sean king, mm-hmm. you know a black lives matter activist who who said look, we get so caught up in the diversity discussion that unless you're a part of that diverse class or people, you can't speak about it. And it's an entirely wrong way to think about it. He's like, I need all of the white people in the room to advocate for black people, because when I advocate as a black man, it just appears um, like I'm trying to be self-serving. and And all of the prejudices that are inherent in racism come alive in that moment. When you do, Uh, as a white person, it elevates that there's something to listen to. And he said, just as that is true, I need to be advocating for the Muslim population so much so that people assume I'm not Christian and I'm Muslim and straight people need to do it for gay people. And he's like, on and on and on. He said, and so what we've missed about the diversity quotient is, is it's not the other advocating for itself. It's the other advocating for the other. That's powerful. So in that talk, in Erie, we knew we wanted to do something, and, and that was about it. Uh, since then, thanks to the generosity of a couple of donors, we've raised a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, we've hired a nationally renowned diversity, equity, and inclusion firm that's going to spend the summer helping guide our community through a blueprint for that work that will do internal staff training. I've committed in the next two to three years to having a chief diversity officer on staff, which is... Uh, I think absolutely critical, but for a nonprofit, a, a tough investment to make from a financial perspective. We've got um, five diversity fellows coming to be a part of our orchestra, which is groundbreaking work. Uh, so much so that the New York Philharmonic has not yet done that, but we're doing that. Um, we've hired, we've rented out a house to house those diversity fellows and to do programming that speaks specifically to um, the needs, wants, desires, thoughts of diverse populations. The trick then becomes what do we do with all of that? You know, What do we learn from it? How do we institutionalize it? Um, too often, I think in, in an, uh, a world that I think uh, has attention deficit disorder of its own macro level, we think if there's not a quick fix, it's not worth doing. Some of these things like diversity we're talking about are generational things that we're tackling. Um, many of the things I most care about I know that there's a better chance than not that I won't see through as president, and I might not see through in my lifetime. Um, so that the quote that you picked, which I'm grateful for, is uh, me talking about diversity at Chautauqua is not the first time a president of Chautauqua has talked about it, and it's not the first time Chautauquans have talked about it. But I think where we've gotten stuck is there's no easy pathway. It's difficult, and there are a lot of other things that could hold our attention, so we You know, we may have dabbled in it or a group of people, and we've had various groups of people in our history that have really cared and tried, but I I believe until the institution says it's a priority at the macro level, it's never going to move anywhere. Where it moves, how fast it moves, hard to say. Um, and, and that's exciting but also a little nerve-wracking as you're making decisions about priorities right another facet of the diversity question is demographic social
0: diversity yeah. um, and, and this is a good segue to another initiative that you've uh, put in place is the, the initiative of turning our gates into gateways and making sure that the local community knows that this in the area in Jamestown the Chautauqua Lake Chautauqua County region knows that Chautauqua institution belongs to them yeah. just as much as the people who gather here for a season or for a week here. Yeah. Um, and not to look at this place as a gated place of affluence. And so can you talk a little bit about the initiatives that you've, uh, that, that we've seen begin over the course of your presidency so far? Yeah.
1: And it's, um, that, that phrase gates into gateways has really become one of the, the central thoughts that I suspect will run through my entire time here. And I hope beyond here, one of the hardest things for me to hear and, uh, is when I first met with staff at dinners and gatherings when I first got here was to hear my own colleagues talk about how difficult it is to work here because their neighbors and friends outside of the gates don't feel welcome here and have a perception of this place that um, having come here prior and now having the honor of leading it, I know is not true, which... uh, and so that, that really bothered me. I also know that uh, if you look at the economics and demographics of our county, it's an incredibly impoverished county, and I grew up poor. So if, if I had not come as a writer, this place would not have been accessible to me. I would have never known it. Um, I don't believe that Chautauqua's need to stay open, which is highly economic-driven, and its desire to be a good neighbor partner in the county are mutually exclusive tenants. Um, Some of it's tricky. I mean, the reality is paying to come into our gates in the summer is the way that we stay open. So it's not the case that we can just fling open the gates and anyone who wants to can come in until we figure out a different economic model. But the other thing that I've said a lot is Chautauqua... Uses the majority of its resources for three months, for nine months out of the year. Um, there's a small population that lives here, the staff lives here, but everything else is vacant. So we've, we've done a few things. We've uh, expanded on what was started when I, I'd already gotten here an arts and education program on taking our resources out into the county, but also inviting people into some incredible facilities um, to, to participate. There's Battle of the Books this weekend and, and the new amphitheater. Uh, So fun for me to sign the certificates of uh, participation for those folks, because it's exponentially more kids than last year. These are fifth graders who have been reading. And if you want to see if you you think that only sports are for competition, come see Battle of the Books. Um, (laughs) Those kids are fierce. Uh, So we've done a lot more of that. I've also asked our staff and our colleagues to be thinking about where we might participate in the county. So when the county has events, uh, it's very important to me that we have a representation always. We've really stepped up our game more publicly in the long-term preservation of the lake, uh, which is certainly central to us, but we know is a lifeblood to the county. Uh, I'm personally spending more time with our county executive. Um, we're, we're deeply involved in the conversations about bringing renewed airplane service here to Jamestown. We're partners with the Comedy Center now. so. Chautauqua, as one of the largest employers in the region and as an institution that has incredible resources to bring to bear, is really trying to step up its game to say, you know, it may take us a while to get you to feel like you can come in and participate in our core program. But in the meantime, we're going to be as good a neighbors as we possibly can be. And and I think that's generational work. If you're just joining us, we're uh, recording from the Cohen Multimedia
0: Studio here on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution. I'm Jordan Steve. Sitting across the table from me is Michael E. Hill, the president of Chautauqua Institution. We're very appreciative of his time. Michael, you're you're part of a a leadership team that is beginning to beginning a strategic planning process right, right now the yeah. the strategic plan that guided the institution for the last 7 years has expired or is about to expire and the next one will lead the institution to its sesquicentennial in 2024 uh, inside that is are these initiatives we've just talked about the diversity initiative the gates gates into gates Gates into Gateways initiative, excuse me, Um, there's master planning, there's strategic financial planning that will result from this. There's a lot of processes that are informing this, but what does it mean to you to be helping to guide this process that
1: will lead to the institution's 150th birthday? Well, I think coming in as the 18th president, there was a lot of gifts that were left for me. One was that uh, Tom Becker and and those he worked with for so many years before me were so diligent and such strong financial stewards that uh, we start this planning process from a place of strength. And so many nonprofits in the United States are thinking about their futures from a place of weakness, where they can't meet payroll or programmatic funding is is weak. Um, that's not the case for Chautauqua, and so one of the the great gifts is. We have an ability to dream more than most can because we're financially strong, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, I'm also grateful for the amount of time and effort that the last two capital campaigns put into uh, re-energizing the physical capital of the place. So the grounds look really good, uh, and that's been wonderful. To have the last strategic plan run out a year after I got here is Some you know, if I could have written it, it would have been that perfect because you don't want to start in your first year. Strategic planning and visioning, you don't know enough. Uh, So to have a year to see how the core operations of Chautauqua work, to meet my colleagues, to understand a little bit better what the conditions and the environment is in which we operate has been great. And now we enter this place of being able to ask big questions like, what should Chautauqua look like in 2024 when we had our 150th birthday? I, uh, while I didn't study it academically, really hope to be considered a student of history. And one of the things that I'm so grateful that was recommended to me and that I followed through on was to read as many Chautauqua history books as I could get my hands on. And there are more than than anyone would think. So if you're listening and you care about it, go pick one of the 40 or 50 uh, (laughs) off of Amazon and eBay and other things to get your hands on.
0: Or the Chautauqua Bookstore. Or the
1: Chautauqua Bookstore, absolutely, which, by the way, never closes. I mean, I think we close two or three days a year, um, so come check that out. Uh, In our history, what I love and what, what it sets up for us is that Chautauqua, not only despite popular and funny uh, reputation has changed a lot over the years, Um, has had an ebb and flow of moments in its history where it was very insular and when it focused on primarily the core summer and the community that gathers here. And other moments was very, very much out into the national and international thought leadership space, the Chautauqua Soviet Dialogues, uh, the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle, which at its height actually served as a major source of education for rural and and folks who didn't have access to education in the Midwest, I think we are entering a period of time where the debate that our founders had on whether Chautauqua was a place or a movement is coming to bear in a really exciting way. And I think the answer to both of those is yes. You know, I, I think we will continue to be a stronger place that serves more people, perhaps for a longer amount of time. Uh, But I also think that this notion of how Chautauqua shows up as a movement, we're perfectly poised for that. And so what I hope this plan does for us and where I hope all of this listening we're doing now leads us is that people will both know Chautauqua for the incredible programming it does in the summer and maybe in other seasons, but also that as major issues are showing up in the nation and eventually the world you find this place called Chautauqua in the midst of it, trying to help people understand how to dissect it. If we could, at our 150th birthday, and this is a question I ask folks when we go through strategic planning, what does Chautauqua look like in 2024? I hope it's less hard to describe. I hope it's much more a noun or a verb for more people. Uh, And I hope that while we will continue to do more and hopefully do it better what we do here, I hope that Chautauqua means something to people who have never come here and who may never come here. And I hope that's the impact we have. And I think we're poised to do that. So uh, I used to teach my grad students strategic planning. This is the, the best dork fest on the planet because really there's nothing that's off the table. There's nothing that's off the table for this institution. I want to dive into the
0: 2018 season for, for a few minutes here. As you mentioned it from the top, this is the first one that you've been involved with from the very get-go, That the entire sausage-making process from conception and now very close to actually bringing it all to life here on the institution grounds. I know this is like asking you to pick, you know, a favorite <laughs> niece or nephew. But what 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 about this season excites you? What particular acts or speakers do you, do you look forward to interacting with, or just being part of the audience for? Uh,
1: what what is it that is getting you excited? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the the hysterical thing is I've had people come visit me, is that oh, it must be incredible to be the president of Chautauqua. And I said, yeah, but you get to actually go to all the programs, and I don't. Uh, <laughs> that said. Um, there are some themes this year that my colleagues have been dreaming about and cooking up long before I got here whose time has just come so I know people will think in week four when we look at Russia and the West that we've just be, we were just being opportunistic uh, but the reality is that's been on the theme list for four years plus now and yes it is the right time but even when it was picked to advance into the 2018 season Russia was not the daily headline that it is today Uh, So it'll be interesting to me to see how modern day news and conversation shows up and what is a pretty introspective week on what's happened with that country and its relationship to others. Uh, I pick on my colleagues because week eight is one I forced on people one of the prerogatives of being president is. Probably one or two of these I get to just say we're going to look at. Um, I suspect my colleagues would say, thank God it's not more than one or two, but we're looking in uh, week eight on something we're calling the forgotten, which is history and memory in the 21st century. I've been really curious for a long time why we leave major seminal moments in history and often say never again, yet only to repeat it. Um, so we'll look at everything from the Holocaust to the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, we'll look at what happened in Kent State as a, a key expression of dissent at a time of great conflict. Yet we find ourselves in a time of great conflict now uh, for different movements. And so I think there's a there's a wonderful companion piece to this in week five with the ethics of dissent. Um, if you think of Kent State as A very visceral expression of dissent of where the country was happening. Look at what's happened this year from the Me Too movement to young people rising up on their perspectives on gun control um, to Hollywood power brokers being taken down. And yet sometimes political power brokers are not. So we'll look at what does it mean to dissent? Um, Some of my favorite people uh, show up in other weeks, so uh, a, a very, fa- a really, really enjoyable moment. I was at an interfaith gathering in Washington and met David Brooks for the first time, who admonished me that he had not been invited back for a few weeks. So, even thought leaders love this place so much that they feel a little bitter when they don't get invited back. So, David's with us, among others, for American Identity Week, and he'll be here on July 6th. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're investing a lot in the literary arts and reimagining that, so we start our week there. Um, couldn't be more excited about that. But you asked me about um, personal things. So uh, little known fact, I was a part of an acapella group for 10 years and traveled a lot, actually sang for the president of the United States and the vice president uh, as part of that group. And the fact that Straight No Chaser is coming is probably um, the closest I get to to believing a rock star just showed up uh, at the place where I work. Uh, so I couldn't be more excited. I, If I could figure out a way to sneak onto stage and sing with them, I might try to do that, but I don't think that's quite in the cards. Well, you, you won't be able to sneak on, but perhaps you could force your way onto stage. <laughs> just step on. <laughs> the, the other thing that I, you know, I mean, there's so much. I could go on for three more hours just on our season, but I met Ken Burns when I was an Aspen fellow before I was a candidate for this job. And there's a photo that I love because, you know, there's these folks in a long line waiting to greet him. And when I finally got up to him, I said, you and I share something in common. And I know he must have looked at me like, oh, right. You know, I'm I'm one of the preeminent documentary storyteller filmmakers of all time. And I said, we both share Chautauqua. And his face lit up and we both kind of did this jump up and down moment thing Uh and I've had a chance since I've been here to get to know Ken, to talk to him pretty regularly. And for seven months was twisting his arm to come back. And he agreed to come back to to open up our documentary film week. Um, so I'm, I'm really jazzed about that as well. So that's on August 20th and 21st. And that's I just right. want to we mentioned
0: Russia in the West Our week four. That is from July 14th to the 20th. And you mentioned The Ethics of Dissent. That's our week five. That's July 21st through the 27th. And The Forgotten, Michael's Pet Week here (laughs) is
1: August 11th through August 17th. Well, and it feels bad to leave the others out. So very quickly, uh, week three, um, which is The Art of Play, Uh, you know, despite what some adult groups have said, well, that's not for me. Actually, the whole week is about adults playing. So it's, you know... Why is it as adults that we lose uh, our ability or our permission to play? Uh, if you've ever wanted to jump into one of those bouncy castles that we send the kids in, we're going to have them for adults. Uh, this is a presidential directive. Uh, this I've is a told. presidential yes. directive. Um, so come check that out. And that's July 7th through the 13th. That's right. Uh, July 29th through August 4th, we're looking at how work has changed, the changing nature of work. Um, you know, if you think about the fact where we started our conversation, in some ways, it used to be the case that people went to one place, worked their whole life. What I described was was not even close to what we look at now, where things are being automated. Where you know, to say that that's a service industry in industry in the U.S. has has gone beyond that. When we're talking about self driving cars and flying cars, so what does it mean to work uh, in the world today is important. And if you're an arts lover, um, or you're interested in how the arts shape society, Yo-Yo Ma's going to be with us from August 5th through the 11th with the Silk Road Ensemble. Well, he won't be here. Well, the he'll whole be time. there the whole time. It'll be there a good chunk of it, and looking at the arts and global understanding. Uh, so it's it's a packed summer. Uh, as I said, I would love to just walk through the summer as a Chautauquan, but instead I'll race through the Chautauqua through the season as a president. Which is an entirely different ball of wax. It is indeed. So
0: I want to spend a little time um, talking about the 2019 season as well. This is one that is currently in motion. It is. We can't divulge too much about this yet. We're not down to the nine themes. But what has it been like to, once again, be beginning that process and looking out for a program that won't
1: be taking place for another year? Yeah, well, there's two things, I think, as we look at 2019 that I hope people look out for. One is that I'm, I'm keenly interested in not, not doing just one-off weeks and then retiring the topic. So as we move from 18 to 19, if you want a hint of the things we'll be looking at, there's certain conversations that we know will be raised in 18 that have either a logical offshoot or haven't fully been answered that we'll explore in 19. So I'm, I'm excited about thinking through over a two or three-year period, how how is Each of those weeks, a chapter to bigger, important work and questions. And so I think you'll see some of that in 19. The other thing that I'm pushing our team a lot on is I think too often for economics, we think of a cast of 10 or 20 people we would like to have come, but we assume they're too expensive or unreachable. And so we're going to be really pushing in 2019, uh, perhaps more so than we ever had to say, who are the very best five or six or 12 people in a week to talk on this? And, and let's go get them, not at all costs in the sense that we're going to spend whatever we need to spend, but I think Chautauqua has the reach uh, that if you look at a David Brooks who is renowned and speaks all over the place, I think every day should be a David Brooks type of day. And you're going to see us pushing more as we announce 2019 to have more of those types of speakers locked up so that people understand the magnitude of what we're discussing. Uh, And we're looking at ways both in 18 and 19 to continue the conversation throughout the year. So in 19, I hope you see a couple weeks where we're announcing that topic as the kickoff or the cap of a major nationwide initiative of something we're looking at. So it's the beginning of our summer weeks not being just about summer, but really the first footsteps into Chautauqua as national thought leader and year-round thought leader. Uh, I think the themes that we're really massaging now down into the nine for 2019 lend themselves well to that and I'm hopeful that if some of the conversations we're having now come to pass that when we announce 2019 and some of the follow-up on it over the summer that people will see the proof that Chautauqua is really stretching its tentacles deep deep into the country it occurs to me that some of our listeners by
0: the time they hear this, the themes may already be out there. Yeah. So at okay. some point, there will be a page on Chautauqua's website, uh, chq.org slash 2019. It does not exist at the moment we're speaking, but uh, that's where you can go to find out where these themes are once, they, once they've once they been announced. Um, we just have a couple minutes left, Michael, but I wanted to ask you, uh, lastly, what it's been like. You've had a, a fortunate, uh, in some ways, I'm sure it's unfortunate, but in a lot of ways, fortunate circumstance to come in and be able to really mold your team. Yeah. You had a lot of natural transitions out, retirements, um, yeah. people who just naturally moved away from the organization and have been able to build uh, your own executive staff and then also get to know the team that's on the ground here yeah. who live and work, uh, you know, who and from are often from around here. What yeah. has it been like to to do that and how,
1: how excited are you to move forward with this team? Well, as you noted, I mean, some of it initially was daunting uh, because I had more openings than I knew I might have. When I started the interview journey, uh, I'm excited about the the people that we've brought on. We talked about Bishop Robinson, who um, came in after Robert Franklin, who is doing, continues to do incredible thought leadership work in religion in Atlanta. Uh, George Murphy leaving allowed me to bring in Dr. Emily Morris, who has a different interpretation of communications and marketing, has built out a great team. Um Uh, Dave Griffith, who came in uh, from Interlochen, which is in some ways so similar to what we are, but a re-emphasis on youth and young people and how do we bring more young people here. And in addition to those additions, what I inherited was an incredible group of people who, I'm grateful, gave me a shot. Uh, I was at a dinner with our finance colleagues the other day, and a senior member of that team said to me, all right, it's a year and a half later, I can be honest. I had no clue what you were doing when you first got here, but now I get it and I'm excited. And and I think what that tells me and what I've felt is even though the way that I'm thinking about this role and Chautauqua's role in the world is very different from what my predecessor might have thought, the willingness of the team that was here when I got here, uh, they were gracious, they were open, they were interested and inquisitive. And, that that's a great blessing. I mean, it could have gone an entirely different way and I'm grateful
0: it didn't. We've been recording in the Cohen Multimedia Studio here on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution. It's been a great pleasure to have Chautauqua Institution President Michael Hill with us for the last hour. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks to Michael Hill for joining us on CHQ&A today. Our producer for this program was Dave Munch with additional support from Ray Downey. A version of this program will also air as Chautauqua Chronicles on WRFA 107.9 FM listener-supported radio in Jamestown, New York. And we are grateful to General Manager Dennis Drew for our partnership. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution recorded in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.